Section 6 of The Keeper of the Bees. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Keeper of the Bees by Jean Stratton Porter. Chapter 6. Good Master, what shall I do? For an hour after the departure of the Bee Master's partner, to whom the Master had so tenderly referred as the little scout, James Macfarlane sat and stared at the whitewashed panel of fence over which the child had disappeared. First a whimsical smile played over his features as he recalled the straightforward humour, the business-like attitude, the flashes of tenderness, and the ruthless acceptance of facts following each other so rapidly in the mentality of the youngster. Then he seriously pondered for a few minutes on whether this peculiar small person really was a boy or really was a girl. The only definite conclusion he arrived at was that sometimes he was a boy and sometimes she was a girl. His mind travelled on to the thing that was always foremost. What was it the youngster had said about death? That there were several ways? What he had been facing for the past two years was death, and the pitiful thing about it for him was that he had never faced it so imminently nor so surely as at that minute. His aching bones reminded him of his weakness every time he moved. His swollen feet cried out whenever he bore his weight on them, and as for the burning in his left side, he had carried it around with him for so long that it was almost like an incurable heartache, or a mental strain from which one never found surcease. Jamie felt reasonably sure that he could eliminate death by water, fire, and explosion. He did not feel that any of these things were likely to happen to him. So there were the two remaining kinds of death. He must face one or the other. That carried his mind back to the time when, as a little boy, he had said his prayers indiscriminately at the knees of either his mother or his father, for his father had been woman tender with his only child. There had been a period of years when he had knelt beside his bed and repeated what he had been taught with some additions of his own. There had been still later years when he had gotten into bed and muttered a makeshift prayer. And then there had been another stretch of years when, in the pride of his strength and the diverse interests of the full day, he had been so sufficient in his own body and his own mentality to any need that assailed him that he not only had not prayed a prayer of asking, because he was getting along very well without asking for anything, but he had not offered a prayer of thanksgiving. And as he sat there that afternoon, looking over the blue garden that was merely a small mountain running down to the sea, studying the beauty of the flowers, the foliage, and the fruit, and then looking on to the white reaches of sand and the blue of the ocean, and the sky stretching away halfway round the world, he was assailed by a distinct sorrow, a feeling of regret that he had ever ceased his nightly prayer. If his arms had been strong, and his brain had been sufficient, if he had not needed to ask physical help, he might have asked that his mind would be kept from the very thing that had happened, and there was always the prayer of thanksgiving. Since the mists had cleared in the beginning, and the sun had shone through and coaxed the earth to foliage and fruit and animals, and man had evolved after the ordained scheme of things, there always had existed in some degree the same exquisite beauty that lay before him now. There always had been in the breast of every man born to enjoy it, a heart which should have rejoiced and should have given thanks for such a heritage. There always had been lips that should have spoken up and told the Creator how wonderful was the mystery of the earth and the majesty of the sea and the beneficence of the sunshine and the healing hours of moonlit darkness. 
There always had been the duty his father bravely had assumed to acknowledge his obligations, to point the way to other men less sensitive to the call of God and nature. Jamie fell to wondering about how he was going to make the kind of death that the little scout had played with, and kissed, and rejoiced in, had thought lovely, become a reality for himself. As he remembered what the child had said, Jamie was devoutly thankful that whatever his mistakes might have been, whatever his errors, whatever sins he had committed, he had not wronged his fellow man. He had not soiled and disgraced any innocent woman. He had not lied and cheated and besmirched his soul in trickery and unfair business dealings. He had intended, when he left college, to study forestry. He had meant to be a tree man. Always he had loved the woods, the fields, the flowers. But to him a tree had been a living thing, a thing with feelings, a thing with feet in the earth and a head in the sky and widely reaching arms of beneficence that gave either shade or fruit or the pleasure of flowers for the benefit of the world. He had meant to go to the greatest doctor of trees and under his guidance and instruction take a thorough course in tree surgery. Then he had meant to begin the great work of saving every possible tree now in existence. He reflected that working as a bee-master was not so bad. Always he could do what he might for the trees, and at the same time a world of flowers were necessary to furnish a suite that from the dawn of history had delighted man, had been medicinal, healing. A noticeable factor in the wealth of the world was the work that the humming gauze wings swarming up and down the garden before him were carrying on. If a man were going to live, if he had the chance to remain for any length of time in a place like that, if he could learn the profession without expensive tuition, without lengthy apprenticeship, it might be a quicker way to a livelihood, and it might be as pleasant and more interesting. There was a possibility that the volumes on the shelves above the bee master's writing desk might contain information that would make a living bee, capable of what seemed remarkably near to thought and preconcerted action, quite as interesting as an immovable tree, which certainly could not be imbued with mental processes even by a far stretch of the imagination. Just when Jamie had decided that in the event the bee-master came home from the hospital weakened and incapacitated, and approved of the manner in which he had cared for his home and watered the garden and the trees and taken care of the bees, merely in case he should make himself useful and interesting, and should be asked to stay, just when he had resolved that he would find out for himself whether the prophecy that by sticking around he would like it in the garden of the bee-master, up popped the old black thought. How much time are you going to have in which to like it? How long will you, trying to do something for the bee-master, resemble the case of the blind leading the blind? If he were not going to be sufficiently well, if he were not going to be sufficiently strong, if in a few months humming-bees and chirping crickets, singing birds and running water, the blue of the garden and the sea and the sky were to be over for him, what was the use? Down below he could see where towers and mountains of rocks had been gnawed and eaten by high tides and smashing waves. Why should not he, when the master came home and the trust he had assumed was over, why should he not just accidentally step off of one of those frowning crags and go down in an undertow that might carry him to China for all he knew? And then, in a flash vivid before him, came the mental picture that the little scout had conjured up when he had told so casually about the drowned man and the turtles. Sharks, it would probably be, that would worry his lean carcass. 
The smile was rather gruesome that twisted Jamie's face when he reflected that his sharks would not find much nourishment in bone and muscle. Then he carried the thought a trifle further and reflected that the muscle would likely be fairly tender. He might make a mouthful for something. Then up, big and bright before his eyes, popped that childish enumeration of the kinds of death, and the description of the little old lady who'd lain on the spread of lavender satin, covered with delicate lace, the beloved lady who softly and gently had gone to sleep in the night without even lifting her folded hands, and who carried to her grave a look on her face that the little scout had described as a smiling secret. There was in this child the paganism, the frankness, the cruelty of childhood. What was it La Fontaine had said about children? That all of them were brutally frank, brutally cruel? Large streaks of cruelty had been discernible in the little scout, but not so large as the streaks of generosity, of tenderness, of the love of fair dealing. Jamie could see the grimy palm in which buttons and strings and sinkers and corks and buckles were pushed around to find the coins that went to pay for a treat for the master. Then, too, there had been in the back of the head of the little scout the penetration to fathom the look on the face of the sleeping woman. Jamie reflected that if he purposely went down to the crags of the Pacific and threw himself to the sharks when he came before God and his father and mother, he could carry no smiling secret on his face. He would not have kept the faith. He would have broken the laws of God and man. He would have allowed frail women to surpass him in courage, in endurance. He shut his eyes to close out even the imagined look on his mother's face. So right there, Jamie crossed off the Pacific from his scheme of release, and he registered a solemn oath in his breast that no matter what happened, no matter if he again came to the fortunes of the road, to the callous indifference that so many wayfarers encountered, no matter what, anything at all, that the most imaginative could think of, he would not take the chance of facing the Creator with a craven soul. He swore by all that he ever had loved and reverenced that he would try, try with all his might in the short time that might remain to him, to master the secret that had given birth to the smile, and that whatever of good he might be able to do for the bee-master, or for anyone he encountered in the time he had left as far as he possibly could, he would forget himself. He would put his own pain and chagrin and disappointment, his own feeling of defeat and uselessness, his own craving for love and intellectual companionship in the background. And he would see if the more than six feet of bone and muscle that contained his being could do any small service that might come his way for God and his fellow man before he went. Maybe if he could accomplish some little thing, something that would ease the ache of even one heart that ached as his was aching at that minute, just maybe that knowledge would be the secret that he might carry in his breast that would set the stamp of an indelible smile on his face, so that even a child could discern the majesty of the impulse, and he would not be ashamed when the end came. Then he arose, and resolutely, though painfully, hobbled down the long stretch of the curving and irregular mountain stairway until he reached the gate. There he sat down and looked the length of the remaining steps and up and down the coast. On his left hand, not so far down, he discovered the most attractive young mountain of stone. It stood boldly, proudly, with defying arrogance in the edge of the Pacific Ocean, and there seemed to be a way by which one might climb it at the back. Jamie imagined that somewhere on the top of it there might be a grooved space where one could sit and look to the north and the west and the south across the measureless miles of sea face, 
into illimitable space of sky country, into the starry orchards of heaven. He wondered if any king had ever ruled from a throne like that, and he decided that none ever had. He decided that he would set that spot as his goal. Today he would go no farther, because he had learned that going down a mountain is far easier than climbing it. But tomorrow he would open the gate and he would go to the exact spot where the trumpets of the toluash and the exquisite lavender beds of a dainty creeping flower that was sand verbena. Jamie'd never heard of sand verbena, but he had very sensitive nostrils, and at that hour of the evening he could pick up an exquisite perfume, and he watched a few late bees journeying back and forth to the delicate beds of colour, just at the line where the pinkish lavender of the verbena and the gold of the beech primroses opened to the sun. He would go that far the coming day, and the following he would march right straight ahead until he attained the crest of the dauntless rock. To reach it he must pass a long stretch of breaking waves, each of which seemed to say to him, I dare you, I dare you to come on. Jamie sat there and contemplated his feet and thought of their swollen and aching condition, and a great longing assailed him to thrust them into the cold salt water of the ocean. Once he half started to rise, and then the thought came to him that if he became chilled, if he took a heavy cold, if he developed a cough, Jamie laid his hand on his left breast and sat still. That would mean the end very speedily and if it were a possible thing, he intended to fight until the bee-master came home and relieved him of the trust that he had assumed when he had agreed to remain with the bees. But the longing, the desire to step into the cold salt water had been awakened. When he heard his call to supper, he started slowly, painfully up the winding stairway. Every few steps he paused and turned to look at the lazy waves creeping up the sand and rolling back again and he said to himself that as sure as there was light in the sky, one of these days he would go down there and he would put at least his feet in the ocean. He would climb that mountain of rock, and he would sit on a high peak as far into the night as he chose. He would watch the Pacific Ocean when the moon was threading it with a million silver pathways. Some time there might possibly be a storm. There might be waves that would lash almost to the top of that towering mountain of stone, Thunders might crash, and lightning might dart in forked tongues, and the waves might go mad and do their worst in unchecked frenzy. Then he would make a point of being on the top of that rock, and he would watch that storm of the elements and see how nearly it resembled a storm that for a long time had been raging in his heart and in his mind. It would be something to think about, something to work for, a definite objective in view merely to reach that lofty rock crest. He climbed a few steps farther and paused again to study the face of the sea and the towering crest that in his own mind he named the throne. It was a throne, a place for a man to captain his own soul. A man would be a monarch of all he could survey, even for a short time on that crest, and it was better to be a monarch even for an hour than never to have had a kingly aspiration. So Jamie went to the supper that Margaret Cameron had prepared for him, and because that climb had wearied him so, because his feet were throbbing almost unendurably from the long, unaccustomed march to which he had forced them, he decided that he was not so well as he had been when he left the hospital, and right there he made a large mistake. His body might have been tried to such an extent that it was not so well, but his heart and brain had been given some exercise that was decidedly beneficial. While he ate his supper, 
Margaret Cameron went through the rooms, touching a curtain here and there, wiping a speck of dust from the wonderful pieces of old furniture, searching with jealous eyes to see if the stranger were doing any damage to the property of a neighbor whom she'd learned through the years, not only to respect but to cherish, with a devotion that was deep and lasting. Presently she came from the living room and dropped abruptly to a chair beside the table at which Jamie was eating his supper. "'You know,' she said, "'I've had about all I can stand today. "'I'm worried over matters of my own. "'I've only one child, and she's always been a good girl. "'She did her schoolwork well and her training course, "'and she hadn't any difficulty in getting a school when she wanted it. "'But I can't see why she was bent on going so far from home "'when she might have had a position here where she could have stayed with me. "'Maybe she was tired of the little house "'and the exacting old woman always scouring and cleaning.' always fussing about how the young people are going to ruin. I'm not sure that I didn't drive her away, and I'm sure that her cousin Molly coaxed her away. I'm not sure that there is any sense in the idea that the present generation is going to ruin. My mother thought exactly the same thing about the girls of my day. When I wanted to go with the boy I married to a barn dance or a corn husking, or on horseback to a picnic or a rally, she thought surely we were doing something that youngsters had never done before, and that perdition was yawning wide for us. Maybe it was, for all I know. Anyway, I'm unhappy about Lolly. She seemed to me to have something on her mind that she wouldn't tell me, and that isn't all. I'm free to admit that if the bee-master doesn't survive this operation and come back to his home and his neighbors, the rest of this world is going to be decidedly tasteless to me— We've lived here side by side for a good many years. I've come over and helped him fix up his place, and he's been over and helped me fix up mine. And when the young folks would go away in the evening and the time dragged, he'd come over and we'd played cribbage or checkers. I never had brains enough to play chess, so it would interest him. Sometimes I'd come over here and we'd sit there by the fire and read aloud from some of those fine old books. She paused and looked at Jamie. "'Are you familiar?' she asked, "'with Dunn's devotions?' "'Jamie nodded. "'They were in my father's library,' he said, "'but nobody even thought to save his books for me. "'He died while I was in the war, "'and Mother had gone not long before, "'and they sold everything. "'Not even a scrap of clothing or furniture "'did any of the neighbors save for me. "'Dunn's devotions went with the rest. "'I don't know where, "'and I was too sick to search, "'and I hadn't the money.' I had to stay where the government would care for me. But I can see what it would mean to see the bee-master with a tinge of firelight on his fine old face and John Dunn in his lean fingers. Slowly, Margaret Cameron nodded. Yes, she said half-breathlessly. Yes, it was a wonderful picture he made. Never in all my life have I seen even a painting of a man so physically and spiritually beautiful as the bee-master. I hope when he comes back that you will stay until you thoroughly learn the fineness of his spirit. It would be a help to you all the rest of your days, only to learn how gentle and tender and fine a man like Michael Worthington can be. The papers today are so full of what men are that they should not be. I wish every young man in the whole world could live a year with a man like the bee-master, in order to learn his patience and his forbearance, his breadth of view, his loving outlook on life." and his fearlessness concerning the hereafter. Then why, asked Jamie, did he fight the operation so? A dingy flush of red crept up in Margaret Cameron's cheek. Well, for one thing, she said, he came here with a broken heart. 
He never has talked to me in detail, but I've started over there on two occasions when he was talking to the little scout, and I think that child knows who it was, or what it was that broke his heart. I think that kitty knows what he fled from when he came here, alone with only furnishings for his library and his bedroom. There's a picture in his bedroom, probably his wife. I asked him once about her, and he only said that she had been dead for many years, and that he had lost, too, her child, whom he adored. But there was something more than that. Death isn't insurmountable if it's accompanied by hope, and the face of the woman who hangs in the bee-master's bedroom might very well stand for a typical portrayal of hope, of purity, of steadfast courage, almost any fine quality that a woman could have. He had lost her. He'd lost her child. I feel sure he had lost his home and friends. I think he deliberately went to the end of his tether, and when he could go no further he fell and left his case in the hands of the good Lord. So they talked on until dusk, when the remnants of his supper were packed in the small basket and Margaret Cameron went home. She invited Jamie to come over any time he was lonely, and she promised to help him with the morning work until she was sure that he had learned to do the watering right, because the lilies must not have enough water to rot the bulbs, and the roses must not start mildew, and the palms must be just dry enough, and the acacias just wet enough. Jamie felt by the time she had finished enumerating the reasons as to why she should come that there certainly was necessity for her presence when he began operations. Then he went into the living room, and because his blood was full of poison and circulating slowly, he scratched a match and lighted the fire that was laid on the hearth. He looked at the chair that stood beside it for a long time, a high-backed chair with wide armrests, a chair of invitation. Without even closing his eyes, he could see the silken hair and beard and the white forehead and the beautiful eyes of the grand old man, whose spirit was the master of the bees and the master of the house and the master of his soul, and something in Jamie that was part of the thing that made him what he was, refused to take the master's chair. He pushed it back to one side and selected another that he thought would fit his long frame very nearly as well. Then he opened the case above the writing desk and picked down one of the volumes that the little scout had pointed out to him. It fell open of its own volition at one page, and the first paragraph that Jamie's eyes rested on read, quote, There are two kinds of rulers among bees— if there are too many rulers, they perish, for thus they become distracted. The olives and the swarms of bees multiply at the same time. They begin by making a comb in which they place the progeny. The comb is deposited with their mouths, as those say who affirm that they collect it from external sources. Wax is made from flowers. They bring the material of wax from the dropping of trees but the honey falls from the air, principally about the rising of the stars and when the rainbow rests upon the earth. End quote. When Jamie read that paragraph, his shoulders shook with a dry chuckle. He paused and began communing with the fire. Left on this job to keep the bees, he said. What I should do is to go over there into the working library and select a volume of instructions for beginners and find out for myself about a few of those things the little scout mentioned, how to tell a queen from a worker, a drone from a nurse. I think I'll feel mentally brilliant if I could look at a bee climbing over a rose and tell whether it was a working bee or a nurse. 
I wonder if the little scout knows those things. Jamie looked at the fire. I shouldn't be surprised a particle, he said. I can see that what I should do is to get the practical part of the bee business first and read the romance afterward. But by my crossbow and halberd, I swear this romance of the bees is entrancing reading. Jamie drew the lamp closer and threw another oak knot on the fire and slouched to comfort in the chair and read on until he found his eyes were tiring and the fire was low and then he went to bed. When he awoke the following morning from a long, sound sleep and managed his bath and the straps that bound the bandages on his chest over his shoulders and round his back to hold his dressings in place, he had made a distinct step forward because he was not thinking about the wound or how soon it would finish him. He was thinking about whether the little scout would come again that day, about whether, after he finished the work he must do, he would have strength left to carry him to the lavender and yellow boundary of the beach, about honey that rained from heaven so very obligingly for the bees of ancient times to gather it up and fill it into cells. He was thinking about almost anything except himself, and that was one of the best things that had happened to him in two long years. That day, when the watering was over and he had taken a nap after lunch, he made the journey that he had contemplated and sat on the hot sands, and he was so intrigued with the evening perfume of the little lavender flowers that grew there, so charmed with the beauty of the gold, that he decided that he would hunt through the Bee Master's books and see if he could find a book on flowers that would tell him what these strange and beautiful things were. And as from the higher point of vantage, he looked with longing eyes toward the clean, cold water of the sea and toward that stretch that lay between him and the throne. He decided that possibly in a week he could make it that far, because his feet were feeling much better after the night of rest, after long application of water, and his muscles were not so stiff and his bones were not aching so intolerably. That evening at six, the telephone rang and Dr. Grayson reported that the operation was over. The bee-master was back in his own room and was conscious. Almost his first question had been whether there was any message for him concerning the bees, and the doctor had told him that everything was fine, but if there was any special report that he could make for the morning dressing, it might help. So Jamie reiterated the statement that everything was fine and added particulars as to the watering and inquired when he might see the bee-master. Dr. Grayson had replied, He doesn't realize how precarious his condition is or how weak he is, but I should think that in a week or ten days you might come for your first visit. In the meantime, I will call you and give you a report each evening to let you know how he is, and I would be interested in knowing how you are feeling yourself. Jamie hesitated over that. He did not know exactly what to say. But before he had time to say anything, the doctor continued, There was no time when the life of the bee-master was in jeopardy to give you any attention, but you look to me like one of our boys who is carrying a pretty serious problem somewhere in his anatomy, and I had my doubts as to whether you were equal to the job you were undertaking. Any time you would like to come in and let me look you over, get a pencil and I'll give you instructions on how to reach the hospital, if you're a stranger in these parts. So Jamie said he was a stranger, and he would very much like to have the location of the hospital, and when he came to see the master, if the doctor would be kind enough to keep that offer open, that would be famous. 
So another day, and then another went by, and each day Jamie finished watering the flowers and the fruits and mixing the drink for the bees, and his inspection of the hives, slightly earlier. He had followed the little scout's advice. When he went among the bees, he had donned the coat worn by the bee master, and he had rubbed Madonna Lily over his hands and hair, and made himself intimately familiar with the cinnamon pink bed. There was a question in his mind, from what the child had said, as to whether the sensitive organs of the bee might not detect a faint odor of the dressings he wore and resent it as unfamiliar, but nothing of the kind had happened. He had been so near the bee-master's height and form. He had worn the familiar coat. He had practiced frequently on Highland Mary, and the bees paid no attention whatever to him, insofar as he had given them a chance. The isolated hives of the black Germans he kept away from. Down in the depths of his soul he had a feeling that if he got near a hive of anything that was named Black German he would very likely muster what remaining strength he had and kick it into the middle of the Pacific, regardless of what might happen by way of retaliation. When he hung the coat on the hook on which he had found it, his fingers struck something rough and warm, which on examination proved to be a bathing suit of wool, a warm, heavy suit. Jamie took it down and fingered it eagerly, and then he walked to the back porch and looked out over the blue waters of the sea. He held the bathing suit up to his shoulders and drew it around him, and wondered whether it would cover the bandages and what would happen if the dressings were soaked with salt water. He was afraid that would not do, so he turned back regretfully, and slowly hung the woolen bathing suit, not where it had been, but on the first hook nearest the casing of the back door, hung it right up prominently where he must see it each time he went in and out that door, and every time he saw it he stood and looked at it, and in a few days more he decided that it would not be a bad idea to put it on and go with bared feet down on the hot sands. There would be no chill about that during the heat of the day, and then he might walk where the little waves were breaking enough to wet his feet, merely to feel the joy that he imagined he would experience in having those cold, salty waves creep up and run over them. He could go back to the warm sand and dry them rapidly, and why might not a process like that stimulate circulation? Why would not the hot sand draw the sluggish poisoned blood in his veins to his feet? Why would not the cold salt water drive it back? Why would not the stimulation thus gained help to throw off the poison bred by the wound in his breast? So, through the warm golden days, Jamie kept his trust with the bee-master the level best he could, with the help of Margaret Cameron, and his mind had as much exercise as his body. Much sooner than he had expected, he reached the foot of the throne. The climb was not bad at all, and he did find, around on the side of the huge rock facing the sea, a long gash that made a wonderful seat, a seat that fitted the curves of his body, a seat that, when upholstered with the bee-master's old working overcoat, would be wonderful to slouch in, to rest, to soak in the sun, to breathe in the salt from the west of the crest. He had not reached the point where he had definitely decided that he would fight. His mind was merely stirred with suggestions, conjectures, and possibilities. If anyone had asked him who had the right to ask and had been given a frank answer, Jamie would have said that six months without any doubt whatever would be the length of his tenure. A year of the best treatment the government could give him had left him worse. He thought about six months would see the finish. Sometimes he was considerably disquieted because the call for him to visit the hospital had not come. 
Each night at six o'clock he answered the phone and heard that the bee-master was barely holding his own. He was not yet able to converse or be bothered about business. Each time he received one of these reports, he called the little scout at the number that had been given him and passed the report on. Twice the little scout had been in the garden for a short visit after school hours. Each time Jamie parted with his new friend with deeper regret. Each time he'd seen some new emanation of the mentality of the youngster that had surprised, sometimes shocked, sometimes delighted him, and as for the question of sex, he was not a bit nearer the solution than he had been the first day. After supper on the ninth day, for the second time, Jamie made his way the length of the back walk, across the beach, and climbed to the throne. He was armed with a broad-brimmed old slouch hat and the old overcoat. He climbed the throne and settled in an especial seat of his own that he had managed with considerable work and more strength than he had known he could muster. He had collected some broken pieces of rock and fitted them indifferently and farther to the left than there had been an accessible seat. Wrapped in the overcoat, he dropped on the seat and faced the eternal verities of sea and sky. No land was intruding. It was the bowl of the sky closing down, the smooth wash of the sea rolling in, and away in the distance a faint red glow marked the spot where the sun threw its light on a world that was steadily turning from it. There Jamie did some more thinking. He was having plenty of mental exercise in those days. He still thought death, but at least he had a manlier thought in facing it. And when he thought life, he did not think of himself, or upbraid his government, or pity other wounded men. He thought merely of that one thing he might possibly do, and what it might possibly be, that would give him some justification when he faced his Maker for the spending of his latter days. End of section 6, read by Sandra, near Montreal, 2022.